Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm Callie Beaton and this is a special, shorter, bonus episode celebrating Pride, hosted by award-winning digital product studios, Us Two. It was recorded in front of a live audience on the last day of Pride Month, just a couple of days ago. So sit back and enjoy. This is me interviewing writer, comedian, producer, host, and actor, Leila Navabi. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Um, just to manage expectations, we have not been booked, even though we're both comedians, we've not been booked to do our best Friday night sort of material. So if that's what you're expecting, just adjust your expectations uh, to more of a sort of, you know, Radio 4 listening experience. But we couldn't be more excited to be doing something with you guys around Pride. It's absolutely lovely. We've nipped in at the end of Pride Month, just got in under the radar. So really pleased to be here. Layla and I had a bit of a chat yesterday and we sort of said, well, what sort of things shall we cover and what do we want to do? And we both sort of lit up with, well, it was Layla's idea, which um, I loved, which was to start with something that is, I guess, a bit of a wake up call to arms, really, for the LGBTQ plus community and, um, and the wider community. And it's a book called Straight Jacket by Matthew Todd that some of you may have heard of or even read. And it was described by Elton John as an essential read for every gay person on the planet. So I think, Leila, you were going to start by reading a little bit from that amazing book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really grateful to be here. I, w- I wanted to start by reading this little foreword from the book, actually. The book is by Matthew Todd, but actually the this this is the foreword, which is written by um, John Grant, who is a fantastic American musician. I don't know if anyone knows his music. I actually didn't when I first read this foreword, um, but I think th- this really encapsulates the queer experience, regardless of industry or you know, whatever your personal circumstances are. So I'll, I'll give this a little read and then we'll talk about it, maybe, Callie, yeah? Mm-hmm. You're all sitting comfortably. Okay, <laughs> I will read this now. <clears throat> and our plane is flying over us, so, that, so that could be fun. Funnily enough, well. Layla and I live really near each other and I can actually literally hear the same <laughs> plane, so that's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly, good. Are we making its way over Lisbon? No, I'm just kidding. We can just all raise our hand when we hear the plane. I'm, I'm going to continue now and read this bit of... I think it is quite clear that, as we have entered into an age of ever-increasing tolerance and acceptance towards the LGBT community, the trauma many of us have experienced continues to cause us to project the past onto the present. We have internalised the negative messages we receive to such an extent that many of us continue to be unable to accept ourselves, brackets, and therefore each other. Uh, Even though most of the people with whom we come into contact with on a daily basis couldn't care less who we're sleeping with and don't pose any threat to us. Many of us have suffered from years of post-traumatic stress disorder, every type of addiction known to man, obsession with beauty, success, crippling anxiety disorders, eating disorders, depression and isolation. 
Perhaps we think that if we admit to these things, they would certainly be used against us by those who seek to deny us equality as proof that homosexuality cannot work. Brackets, never mind that all these phenomena are present in every part of every society, regardless of sexual orientation. Maybe we think that if we are to be accepted, we must be morally beyond reproach or at least perfect in some sort of way. We can't be gay and average or, God forbid, below average. We should be rich and or beautiful with a perfect body, excel in everything we do, be lousy with talent, have exquisite taste in everything and also impeccable style. We must either be comfortingly masculine or camp in a way that isn't threatening or is at least amusing. We must make an effort to fit in. I think many of us have become overachievers who are tortured by crippling perfectionism because we think that this is what we must do in order to survive. So that's how we should begin, I think. So it, it sort of uh, encapsulates what we're going to talk about today. It does. Right. Thank you so much, Leila. That's no I, I muted myself while the plane flew over my place because I'm, you know, a five-minute flight path away <laughs> from you. And really interesting starting point. So um, to, uh, to be gay means not to be average. And the idea of the fact that we might have this heritage of having to still kind of even think about or perhaps not think about overcompensating. So I think it's fair to say, Leila, that you are not average uh, in terms of the context of your life, but also what you're achieving in your life right now. So you're described online variously as young, queer, writer, comedian. How would you describe yourself? God, this is a, a an enormous cause for concern for me um, because I I'm quite the multi hyphenate, and I think again this all ties into everything I've just uh, read from this book. Um, I'm a, a professionally, I'm suppose I'm a writer and a comic and a producer, um, somehow an actor now as well, which wasn't to be expected, um, uh, and a presenter. I, I do lots of different things. I think for me, I, I just like to be creative. And so uh, anything I can do to be creative whilst also financially uh, recompensing from that what, while while also paying my bills is fantastic, <laughs> to be honest with you. So you're able to pay your bills and you do many, many things. For, is it, um, are you okay for me to say that you are 22? You right for me to mention your age? Yes, yeah, yeah, I am, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know what is the obsession Let's say, unfortunately, I got into stand-up at 45. So Layla and I, it's fair to say, are at opposite ends of the spectrum in that regard, not so much in lots of other ways. And in terms of the, the context of you getting to where you've got today. So you now are 22, you live in London and you've got a very accomplished and fast growing media career. But tell us a little bit about the story that got you from growing up in South Wales to sitting where you are right now in Archway in London, age 22. Oh, it's a weird, it's a, it's a, I, I always feel bad telling the story because I feel like I'm on X Factor or something and that I need to like provide some sort of like emotional uh, narrative. I mean, I really had a very bad time at school. Uh, went to quite a shit state school. I, mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but I just did. So I said sorry. motherfuckers right out of the gate. Yeah, so okay, fine, we're fine. Saying. Yeah, I'll say shit, so that's fine. I went to very bad school. My school, the school I went to, the secondary school I went to is the biggest school in Wales but also the third biggest school in Europe. So 
if that's quite big um and we were all very much like treated like numbers and there were fights and knives and stuff like that um and i it didn't really suit me <laughs> i don't know if you can tell um and so for me i i needed to get out of there and that and that situation um and i i think for a lot of queer people um whether or not it's it's founded and i think for me maybe it was a little bit um the idea that you need to flee and be independent as long as possible for fear of rejection that could um you know put your life or finances or home in, in danger or your you, you know you I, I think for a lot of people who are queer and scared of those things happening to them they want to get out of wherever they are and become as um independent as possible so they don't have to rely on anyone else I think and that is what I did so I left and I moved to London and I lived in a hostel for uh about seven months and I got this apprenticeship how old were you when you were in the hostel 17 and uh, this was moving away f hoping to find somewhere where you might belong or because you felt really that the imperative was to go and fend for yourself or was, I was it a combination? Um, I think there's a few things. I was having a tricky time at home. I don't, I'm not really going to go into like massive detail about mm -hmm. that because I think um, it, it's not really necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but it was difficult and I needed to get out of that situation. And um, there's very little I'm, I was qualified to do at 17. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd done like Saturday jobs and whatnot, but um ultimately I knew I wasn't going to progress in in a way I I wanted to and I, I couldn't really go to university because I couldn't fund that mm -hmm. um and so for me it was just finding a, a different thing to do and and that was you know media sort of worked out quite well there so I became an apprentice at Viacom International Media Networks which I know Callie knows very well um uh which is now Viacom CBS actually very it interesting is what's happening there. CBS. when I was there it used to be MTV as you'll be able to tell from the gold disc behind me on the wall oh and that yeah very now it's just it's getting bigger and bigger it now we're bigger, not there Leila. yeah exactly I know that we were holding that we were holding them back um yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's where I, I sort of started and I there I was writing articles and I wrote articles for Comedy Central and for MTV and then I started to cover some digital production stuff at Comedy Central uh, and simultaneously, while all this is happening, I, I I decided I wanted to write a script, a sitcom script. Um, and I think I, I started writing it, writing when I was about 16 and going through some hard times and it was a comedy. Um, and I finished it while I was, you know, I'd first moved here to London. And, um, I, and when you're done with something like that, what do you do with it, I suppose, is the big thing people... <laughs> would ask you know what, mm -hmm. what's the point and why are you doing this so I um sent it off to BBC writers room which I don't know if it, uh, anyone listening that's not in the UK it's just this website that I mean to be honest in the UK it's not very well publicized but there is a website where there are writing competitions and whatnot and these can be for TV but also for theatre whatever and at the time there was um a BBC Wales writing opportunity called find me funny and so I just sent my script into there in the hopes that just someone would be like I don't know I guess I, I I just wanted some sort of acknowledgement, I think, for having written it. So I sent it in, didn't think anything of it. So whilst my career is starting out, you know, in really very much in this infancy of Viacom, I then get a call from the BBC who say, we really like this script, you're a really good writer, but you don't know how to structure anything. 
obviously, why would I? And how old were you? Was this still in your first couple yeah, of years? Yeah, 17. Yeah, 17, 18 at this point. So when people were doing their A-levels, you've got a script that the BBC are interested in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not bad. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't bad. It was all right. And so they paired me with this fantastic mentor called Caroline Moran, who is sist sister of Catelyn, I guess, which yeah. some people might find interesting. Um, but she's very much a brilliant writer in her own right. And she taught me how to structure a script and how to like, write it professionally. Um, eventually that script got optioned by a production company. Um, and now it's, you know, we may or may not be in process of sort of signing some deals here and there with various companies. So I, I can't really go into much about that, but that took off. So that means I'm a writer now because I'm spending a lot of time writing that and other stuff as well. Um, you present, so you host um, CBBC's Don't Blame Me, Blame My Brain with Ken Cheng, I think. Is that yeah, 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 yeah. And you've also produced uh, the Radio 4 BAME show with Desiree Birch, is that right? Yeah. Which is incredible that, so you're producing something for Radio 4. And I, again, I don't want to keep banging on about age because one of, the, one of my pet hates is anyone making assumptions about me based on my age. So I dare say that would be the same, um, whatever your age might be. But just in terms of experience, it's amazing so soon in your career to be managing to do all these different things that many people spend 10, 20 years kicking around the block trying to do. So, so one of the things I'm interested in, as well as the skills that you have had to acquire with mentoring or without, and we'll talk a bit in a moment about allyship and mentoring but I'm also really interested in you finding your voice because I guess a huge part of what you write and how you write it and how you perform is having a sense of becoming more like yourself not less like yourself to have to blend in so, mm. so what's that process been like in terms of leaving home at 17 I guess without an incredibly clear defined sense of self and now you've had to kind of define one while surviving financially so, so where are you at in terms of finding your voice uh very early on I think I have no clue what I, I I am or who I am um and I think that that I think when I was 17 I had more of an idea of who I thought I was than I do now um and I think that was probably some weird guard I had up now I don't really have a need for that guard to be up because my life is utterly fantastic I think you start to realize cracks in your own personality and realize that perhaps I mean, I, I try not to think about myself too much because I think it's dangerous and you can become a narcissist and that can fuck your work up really badly. And I think I've seen that happen to a lot of people. <laughs> Their work has just gone horrible. And in fact, doing stuff like this makes my skin crawl because I'm like, why does anyone care? Like, go and this, this feels very weird. Just to get um, an hour off work. To yeah, I mean, listen. yeah, totally. So please, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope this is wonderful <laughs> for you. Um, you know, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a pleasure, but also, why are you here? I think that um, I think that when you're, I mean, I keep bringing it back to being gay, which I suppose is just a big part of it. And I think I think that's the case with a lot of things. That is such a big part of your identity, which presumably you hide for so long. I mean, not everyone, but I did for certain. And How long did you people. hide it for? I mean, seventeen years. <laughs> and, okay, so um, it was only when you moved to London you well, felt you could. I, I was be outed. I, I, I told a close friend that I was outed, and I suppose that's. Um, why things didn't go so well in Wales for me. Um, in terms of how your your own background and your own family responded to being outed and what they thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's just, yeah. I mean, look, it wasn't good. It was, wasn't a good reaction. And so um, I think a way of, I think once you've bottled up so much of your 
personality and, and character for so long your inst well my instant reaction was to go I want to stand on a stage and talk about it which might so sound from one mad. extreme to the other so going from hiding it to yes wanting... because that was for other people's benefit and and I think I thought what's the worst that can happen and the worst did happen and because the worst happened it was like well fuck it I'm gonna just tell everyone about it now because like I'm, I'm bulletproof is how it is it's, it's quite it's really um empowering actually so you're scared of being rejected for who you actually are if you show your true self and then when you do show yourself and there is a response that is negative and pushes you away then in a way you have nothing to lose right then you've got your worst fears have come true you're yeah out there on your own with yeah. your own voice your own identity having to survive so I guess much as that's terrifying there's also a liberation in that yeah that is that is absolutely it I think um it's it, yeah that's you've said it really more eloquently than I ever could for certain what's um, the um we're obviously we're here you know with with us two talking because it's pride month so we're talking about pride what what does pride mean to you and pride's obviously a bit different this year obviously the parade's not till September we've all been marking pride in in our new normal or our temporary semi-virtual world perhaps partly real world but what what does pride mean to you Leila um I don't know. I I think, I think it's um. I I don't know. I I feel like we we are disparity with Pride Month, and I think I, I'm sorry. This doesn't answer your question properly, but I think it's important to note like that. There's Pride, the corporate thing, and then mm -hmm. there's Pride, the like activism thing, and I think yep. that those two things are very separate. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, look, there's a lot of discourse at the moment going on about like how actually Pride and rainbow flags on nando's or rainbow flag you know here and there is is not perhaps not a good thing if people aren't being active within their um you know within the room in which they operate so if that's with your employees or with your employers or you know if that if you aren't being inclusive and active within that activism it's not activism it's performatism i guess um i personally really like that stuff because the idea of my dad having to walk into a bank and see a rainbow flag where he banks is really um empowering <laughs> again liberating and I, I think that those people that see it as a performance perhaps are, aren't the people that that need need that sort of allyship for me um I relish nothing more than walking around where I went to school and, and received a lot of shit, frankly, and seeing pride flags and seeing, um, you know, pick, like people on adverts kissing, like the gay couples, you know, all of all of that stuff is for me is really empowering. Um, I, I think, of course, we have to do more, and people are maltreated, and there's de definitely still an inequality there. But, it's also um, what you say about allyship. I think is really important. Um, if we look at sort of straight and cis allies and what it means to be an ally and how it, it is partly about educating ourselves and, and everybody doing something but it's also it, it's kind of what to say what not to say and, and also what to do so if you think about what it would mean to be an actionable ally and people listening to this now in terms of what they can do to for it not just to be lip service to something for people to actually if they if they whatever their angle is whatever their demographic is have, have there been people who've been meaningful actionable allies to you Layla um no I don't think but I've also I'll be really really honest and I don't know if that's what everyone wants to hear I've never 
in the workplace faced any discrimination based on my sexuality ever. In fact, I, I find myself being more accepted when people find out that I'm gay. And I think a lot of that comes with being a brown woman, um, to be quite honest. I think that if you're a brash, loud brown woman, or uh, brash is, a, I, I think that's the wrong word. I, I've been described as brash before, but I think if you're a bossy, loud brown woman who knows who knows her shit and knows that she knows her shit, then um, people have negative connotations associated with that because of the media they're fed. And I think that when people, when when that's coupled with, but I'm gay, people think, oh, okay, if I dislike her, it means I'm homophobic, which I don't want to be because I love RuPaul. I think that's, that's very much the attitude that is in every workplace I've ever been. And so being gay for me has always just been... I've had to stop using it as a crush because what I, I a crutch, sorry, because what I end up doing is using it to um, try and pacify people who are being microaggressively racist towards me, which feels like um, a weird thing to be doing with two parts of my identity. So um, it's kind of um, it's kind of ism upon ism, then uh, racism upon homophobia upon, and then people deciding to come out with their their version of what they are and are not willing to accept about you. So they're sort of countering w one element of an assumption with another one about you in a way. Yeah, people always assume I'm straight, um, which is fine. Maybe I just, it's because I don't have a buzz cut. I don't know. Um, I think it's because, and also because we don't see enough. Uh, if you look at media in general. And, and just ev like anything we're fed or anything that we are so subconsciously is put in front of us. You don't see brown gay characters, really. They're all like twinky little lovely gay men or um, and I use that with love because a lot of my friends would describe themselves as twinks. Um, I And, I, you know, or you get, you know, the what's her name that was in Orange is the New Black, the one, the really gorgeous yeah, yeah, yeah. one. She looks a bit like Justin yeah. Bieber. Yes, you know, know exactly who you mean. We'll put a link in the show notes. We'll put a link. Podcast. I can't remember yeah. her name. Um, you know, and, and I think that seeing people that look like you and are like you, like, I, I, I don't feel like either being gay or being brown are the prime parts of my personality. And I think when people want to meet me and want to be, or, or have to associate me with me in a work context, the first thing I think is, oh, she's a brown woman. And I can see that that's their first thought instantly. And is it, I know that um, the various assumptions are made about all of us, whoever we are in the world, and some people suffer from negative sort of stereotypes and people sort of holding them back because of that. I know one of my pet hates is people assuming things because I'm in my 50s, you know, assuming what a woman in their 50s should do or assuming that there's an invisibility that comes with that or assuming it's a disadvantage. And there is a certain pleasure sometimes I find from those perspectives of doing things and just going, well, fuck you and what you think I maybe should do and shouldn't do. This is this is who I am. Don't assume anything about me. Don't underestimate me. And is there any pleasure in you playing with those negative stereotypes or underestimation where you're just able to counter them by what you do and how well you do it? Mm, a little bit. I think it's, uh, it's a bit like pressing on a bruise in yeah. that like it's a nice pain, if that makes sense. Um, being able to subvert people's um, unconscious biases towards you um, because it sort of hurts that people have those biases in the first place. And so by subverting them, you're acknowledging them and that feels a bit shit. But again, I like to fuck with people. I like mischief. And for me, being able to go like, oh yeah, I live with my girlfriend. We've been together three years and I'm 22 and this, this, this. And you know, I have this very, and I also I'm really happy I think people always want to paint this like sob story picture of what it's like to be a queer young person. Um, 
and it's I'm just so happy and having the best so, time ever which so I think what we hope. so what we see is what we get you know that you we're seeing right now and hearing right now is is authentic but where's the where is the vulnerability then in you if you think about all of us having all these different parts of ourselves the self we show to the outside world the world the self we really are and the gaps between those things so it, it, is there space for vulnerability and uncertainty when you've had to be what on the outside looks like incredibly strong and determined to get where you are right now where's the scope for for that bit? i think that comes into race more for me personally mm -hmm. i think that um and again i know this is a pride event but actually i think intersectionality is really important which mm -hmm. is why i'm really glad to talk about this because mm -hmm. um battling with two parts of your identity is something that is incredibly difficult especially when they're housed in people's assumptions on you um i think that vulnerability for me comes from um other people's assumptions because i know you say you see you, you what you see is what you get but like how you see is informed by loads of other shit mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you don't perhaps do you know what i mean like yeah. i i like to think especially in like more, more recent days i present myself as authentically as i possibly can mm -hmm. and i ha have have not always done that but definitely feel like i'm I, i'm constantly striving for that because i think it's only a good thing to be at one with your own personhood um i think that um vulnerability i think it yeah it comes in other people's assumptions really and it's quite um, courageous to be vulnerable i think it took me years to think that being vulnerable or knowing my own yeah. vulnerability was was a sign of courage because like you from quite young i kind of fended for myself yeah and i sometimes wonder if that's where resilience comes from if we because really what we want is people talk about bringing their whole selves to work which i guess is part of the reason we've been booked to do this is to kind of shine yeah. a light on a broader conversation with people from outside the company but it's quite hard to bring your whole self to any situation if that whole self has to be so whole all of the time if that makes sense yeah absolutely yeah 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 yeah. precisely and I think yeah vulnerability is important and it's important to set your boundaries and say you know I don't want to talk about you know people will often ask about the traumatic parts of my life and want to hear about those and think that that's an act of allyship and pride but actually I don't think that is the case I think what actually would be the best the the, the best thing to do is be accepting of whoever is in front of you for whatever there are they are not in spite of whoever they are um so you know if you're dealing with somebody who is gay or somebody who is trans or somebody who is queer um or whatever you know you, you're gonna you need to acknowledge as a human being that you're going to have um misconceptions and um uh what's the word I suppose pre preconceived ideas yeah. about what yeah. they might be um and, and it's your responsibility to acknowledge that so when you go to say to someone you know do your parents hate you or, or whatever you know you need you need to think about what what that answer is going to be so if I want to hear that someone's had a really troubled time why do I want to hear that is it because it makes me feel better is it because it makes me feel a good person for being polite to them because that's not a reason to be polite to someone because they've had a hard time um and I think that happens more and, and that, that applies to race as well in a massive way actually mm -hmm. um I, I feel that often you know people don't want to listen to I mean this definitely applies to black people you know more so than it would to me as a light-skinned brown woman but the idea that someone wants to hear you you know talk about trauma in, or, in order to accept you or I'll give you the time of day providing you give me this enormous piece of your your personhood and your vulnerability I don't think we owe vulnerability to anyone actually 
Yeah, so um, the kind of trauma porn, trauma tourism is really for the benefit of the person watching, not the person. Yeah, who's so they can feel better. So they can feel yeah. better about themselves. And or I feel think they've that, done something meaningful for somebody who's gone through this deep trauma. So there's a bit of sort of virtue. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, look, look. Even yeah. like a talk like this, right? Say I came on and I went, oh, you know, I've had a really hard time, and this is this is this, right? So we're going to have queer people in the audience. I'm going to say audience. I know you're not, not you know, just all at our computers. Um, and you know, if you're a queer person, maybe you're coming to this because you want to hear about experiences that resonate with your own and that's cool and that makes sense because you want to be heard um if you're a straight person perhaps you're coming to this because you feel like you're an ally but what do you want to hear me say is the question you know what I mean do you want me to come here and say like I've had a really difficult time so you can walk away and feel better about yourself because I think we're taught more and more that um queer and I'm going to use the word queer to mean the LGBTQ plus community the, the LGBTQ plus pain is is entertainment um and I think that we need to stop that shit now. It's also um, it's also a very surface understanding, I think. But one of the things I just want to talk about, and we are going to open this up for Q&A, but podcast listeners, you're not going to get to hear that bit. So I just wanted to ask, if we think about walking towards difference and difference not being less, I often talk about this in regard to my autistic son, that people have huge assumptions and sometimes there's real positive discrimination about someone who's neurodiverse. And I've watched it from every angle, um, you know, raising him for the last couple of decades. And I do wonder if the lockdown world that we've all been living in, if you think about the necessity in the real open world of us coming into contact with people who aren't so much like ourselves, particularly if we live in a big city, you know, even just getting on a bus or a train or getting a coffee. And suddenly, because we've all been in these much smaller worlds, people haven't had to walk towards difference. And I sometimes wonder if that's why we've become much more bigoted as a society. There are lots of sad reasons for that at the moment. But how, how do you think this last 18 months has changed in terms of people seeing difference and seeking out people who are not exactly in their own image? Do you think it's had an impact? Um, the last 18, oh, is in the lockdown? lockdown yeah. I mean, look, I think that anything, you know, I think anything that lockdown would have achieved on its own has probably, um, it, it's sort of impossible to say what was lockdown and what was the graphic murder of George Floyd um, mm. because those things happened at the same time mm. um, and I think that both of those things had huge effects probably and, um, the, and the end of the Trump administration and the end of the well. Trump yeah, yeah of course I mean there's, there's so much that's happened culturally that's underpinned everything that's happened in lockdown um, I think you know being alone with your thoughts perhaps does make you evaluate who you spend your time with and why you and if you want to spend your time with those people mm -hmm. and especially if you're you know you're used to working in an office space where you're surrounded by people who you know whether or not you like and this is maybe is a taboo, taboo thing to say in a room full of people who all would be sharing you know office spaces perhaps I don't know but maybe you know you're thinking I why do I spend so much of my time with people who don't understand me I spend so much of my time not being able to be myself and that is deeply damaging and I think that for queer people be, having that more time to be yourself and having your professional self locked into a screen is perhaps quite empowering I certainly found it very empowering mm -hmm. um because you know though I though I claim to to be myself as much as possible and you know there are definitely aspects that there there's lots that feels really nice to be able to shut your computer screen and be back in your own space and mm -hmm. and and feel like you own that you know yeah. um and I don't know how I mean going back into offices I think it's going to become more and more difficult I think it'll be a mixed bag. Some people, it depends who you live with, doesn't it? Some people dying to get away and some people Oh, that's think, very hey, true. I, I just live with me and my partner and that's you wonderful. You see, you're in a yeah. bubble. Let yeah, me yeah, tell yeah. you, mine's been more complicated. But that's a story for another podcast. <laughs> um, I just want to ask you, 
well, a couple more questions just to, to round off our conversation, Leila. And cool. thank you so yeah. much for being so authentic and generous with everything you've said. Yeah, you know, one so never I'm not being funny. Um, well, people know I was going to, we, we, but we kind of weren't, but that's why I said at the start, we're not really here to be funny because we can do that all the time. But I there mean, are yeah. some, it's really lovely to hear the authentic you actually sharing your stories and none of us think our stories are the interesting ones and no, and okay. we're right in a way that if we heard anyone's story who's listening to this it would be just as interesting as anything yeah, we have to say yeah. but getting an insight into your story is, is 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 a fascinating one and I just want to ask if we think about what's actionable so it's all very well us listening to this it's interesting it's thought-provoking but what can people do so if there's one thing anybody listening to this could do as they leave this podcast or this meeting depending how they're hearing it one thing that they could do as they leave this conversation today what what would that be um I think I mean look I'm not hired by him to do PR but I think if you read straight jacket the book that's a pretty pretty good educational source um but I also think that do you know I don't I don't know and I think that I, I don't think that I should be the one to to tell you what you can do, frankly, because, um, you know, it's not a one size fits all question. Like some people in this room might be gay themselves. And if if I were you, what I, and if you're gay and you're a white person, I'd say go and research the atrocities that are being committed against black people across the country right now. That's what you should focus your attention on. I think that if you're a straight person, you go and research gay things I, I, I think so that, educating yourself whichever think, way yeah I think you need yeah. to educate yourself um and it can be tiring um it can get really tiring and I think uh what do they call it allyship fatigue and I think that that's definitely something that, that that people have experienced especially during lockdown actually where so much was happening culturally um I would say yeah I, I would say educate yourself and I would say as as action I, I guess yes. taking education as a form of action yes I, I would suppose I think that the best thing you can do is not make assumptions about people and the only way you're going to train your mind to not do that is to consume media very carefully and that's a tricky thing to do when a lot of the stuff that's put out there right now is um you know commissioned by old white men who are mostly straight so that's what I would say. I mean, actually, there are bigger actionable things you could do, and I'd be a hypocrite if I if I said you know go and you know what I what have, what have I done for different causes that I think are important? I've donated money to causes that are important, mm -hmm. like that that putting money where your mouth is. I would say, and I think that's what corporations should be doing. You know, um, pay queer artists to do queer art. Thank you and for having support me. Queer, <laughs> support queer performers and events, not least the ones you can find on Leila Navarro and Kelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a very important thing to do to action things. Um, I'm very aware that we are also going to, um, this will be the end of the podcast, lovely podcast listeners, and we are going to then have a, a chance to chat with some of the people who are here with us live today. Um, if, if there was one sort of closing uh, closing word or two you could say, Leila, whether it's uh, advice to anyone or just something that's on your mind as we finish this lovely conversation. Yeah, yeah I think that uh, I would like to leave a note for queer people and queer people who are not young in age, but perhaps young in, in, in knowing or finding out that part of their identity. And that is that you don't need to apologise or justify anything or anything or any one that you do frankly um i think that that sums it up pretty pretty damn well
For our special Pride episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find out more about Layla's stuff, about Jen Ives, Us Too, and the brilliant Straight Jacket by Matthew Todd, all in the show notes. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please remember to like, subscribe, rate, and review, and just keep supporting the podcast and spreading the good word. So thank you again to Us Too for having us, and we will be back in your feed next Monday, as usual, when I'll be talking to TV and radio personality Baz Ashmawi. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.